Welcome to How It's Musically Made, a podcast dedicated to redefining the art song tradition. I'm your co-host, Ben. And I'm your co-host, Maggie. For those of you who are new to the podcast, we are following the journey of three groups of poet, composer, pianist, and vocalist, as they each work together to create an original art song. Today, we will be talking with our third and final group. So this is the last week of introductions before we dive into the creative process of each team. If you haven't already listened to our first two episodes, go check them out so you can meet and hear from each group. Today, we're talking with pianist Georgia Mills, composer Baldwin Jang, poet S. or Smith Yarberry, and soprano Vidita Kanix. First, we'll hear from Georgia, who is a pianist and conductor I met at Eastman, where she's currently pursuing a master's degree in orchestral conducting. We're going to listen to her play a piece called Marcos and Marcos by Tigran Hamasian to get started. listen to Marcus and Marcus by Tigran Hamasian and mm-hmm. I'm also a massive Tigran Hamasian fan yes. as a jazz pianist. Maybe tell us about that piece like why you chose it, how you play from a transcription, did you do it by ear and maybe mm-hmm. the differences between performing a work by a jazz pianist or improvisatory work uh, versus a, a standard composition in the quote-unquote new music world I guess. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean just kind of a background, my dad um, has played jazz piano kind of just for fun since I was little and he you know, as a full-time reporter, journalist, editor in DC. So he has a very full career, but still kind of instilled this love of jazz, um, like standards in me at a really young age. So, um, I started piano as like a classical, you know, studying with my lesson teacher when I was, you know, starting at five years old and I was always going kind of the classical route, but always had this love for jazz that I never really got to explore Mm -hmm. until probably like a couple years ago when I really fell in love with Tigran Hamasian's music. And since then, what I love about Tigran is he's not strictly a jazz composer. Like some of Mm -hmm. his works are notated. He's come out with, um, a number of maybe not a number of but definitely at least one set of piano uh, solo works that he's notated himself and released and published so marcos and marcos was one of the um tunes in that book so I, pr- I purchased this book from him and his publisher and worked on it from there but as you can imagine there are certain you know elements of his works and his pieces that are very improvisatory um they definitely can't really be notated because he plays them differently every time he performs them so at those points sometimes he'll say something like he'll give an instruction above the music like you know make this your own or like improvisatory swing mm-hmm. feel something like that to make it a little bit more um flexible for the performer to come up with something themselves surprised actually to know that he was okay with publishing and notating his his music because I wasn't sure if that's you know something he would even want to do as someone who's kind of half improvisatory right and half composer here's another clip of Georgia playing this is fever dream by Sebastian Zell
So mm-hmm. Fever Dream, the the piece by Sebastian Zell. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about the performance of that piece, like your relationship with that composer? Yeah, definitely. Sebastian and I have been friends actually for quite a long time. We um, met during our undergrad at New York University, um, where I was studying. At, we had actually kind of studied under the same um, composition teacher. I was taking composition as an elective and met at this composer's house. We got to talking and I realized I really enjoyed his music. Sebastian's music is incredible. He is from Miami, but now has been living in Brooklyn for probably like five or six years. And has a beautiful harmonic language that I really connect to. And um, he knew I was a pianist. So we kind of started collaborating quite a long time ago. And so this is an electroacoustic work. Did you guys workshop it together? What was the process for creating this? It was very much heavily workshopped. So he would write kind of a section. I would, you know, work on it, um, kind of tell him what was possible and oftentimes bring him back a little bit because he was very ambitious as a lot of composers are. If you listen to this piece, a lot of the electronics are kind of elaborations or elongations of the spiked notes that I'm playing on the piano in the very high registers. Um, So if I hold the pedal down and play a very spiky E or something, um, the resonance of that E will be held by my pedal, but also by the electronics that kind of, for, you know, many seconds after it, have a lot of very intriguing little nuances in, in the electronics that bring a lot of color to that sound. So he was definitely working very much in tandem, the electronics and the piano part itself. In terms of piano playing and working with composers, you mentioned like workshopping specifically your piano part and like reining him in. Um, (laughs) What in general, I guess, what kinds of things do you work on with composers? I've had a lot of really great collaborations over the years, actually. Um, Going to, at first, NYU, meeting a lot of great composers there and playing in the um, new music ensemble at NYU. We were were premiering a lot of composers' pieces there, so I would often try to, like, workshop with them to figure out the best sounds um, that they were looking for with piano. And then also at Eastman, I've had so much fun working with composers here. Um, It's a kind of different compositional vibe at these two schools. For example, there are kind of two different schools of composition in New York. I don't know if you've kind of yeah, come across uptown, this. Downtown. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so a lot of NYU is the downtown um, compositional approach, where right. you know it's a little more kind of uh, some people would call it like indie classical. I hate these kind of very vague right. terms, but um, and then there's like the uptown school, which is more maybe uh, you know like Columbia. Um, which is a little bit more like has ties to more European Mm -hmm. avant-garde kind of writing. So I think Eastman definitely has more of an uptown approach to um, its composers here, which can be really fun to work with because I also conduct with Musica Nova, which Mm -hmm. deals a lot with European avant-garde. So it's really fun to kind of program um, composers here alongside the music that we're programming with Musica Nova. So that's really nice too. Let's talk about your conducting a little bit. So you said that pursuing conducting feels like a natural culmination of all the musical areas you've studied. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in a family that surrounded me in the arts very early on. I mean, if you talk to my mom right now, she's always saying like she played Chopin and like opera when I was in the womb. (laughs) I started piano lessons when I was around five. And then, you know, my sister and I entered this really prestigious like ballet school pretty young um, where we'd have to, you know, 
sometimes skip school for rehearsals and stuff like that. So I learned a lot about like determination, dedication to your art, rehearsal etiquette and <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and then I also picked up cello and I sang in a you know cathedral choir for years. So I had a lot of background in a lot of different instruments and musical areas. Orchestral conducting kind of was this nice culmination of all the areas that I loved studying as a child and have now kind of wrapped up into one nice bow as like someone on the podium giving, you know, um, their vision and helping facilitate musicians um, on stage. Can you talk a little bit how conducting compares to like internalizing music as a performer? Well, I don't know that they're all that different, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a a lot of people will say, like, a lot of conductors start out with piano because it's you're familiar with reading a score, you're familiar with internalizing many different um, notes and voices at once. Um, And so you naturally kind of are able to translate that into a full score. But I honestly think that any musician has that ability because we all have to read and interpret music as something of our own, but also something that honors what the composer's intentions were. So um, that's all that a conductor can do as well, right? Like it's all the same. I I really don't feel that there's a huge separation between someone on the podium and someone sitting on the stage playing. As a performer, I know in in the past, teachers have told me to stop what I'm doing and conduct it, you know, and imagine Mm. what it would be like to conduct the piece and then go back to playing it. So yeah, I totally agree. Right. And vice versa, actually. I'm sometimes Mm. on the podium and my teacher will say, pretend you're playing piano right now. Just like imagine physically, you know, striking the piano at this moment. And then actually, as you're conducting, you're really doing the same motions. This is great. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun meeting my uh, team, too, because they're all so interesting. Yeah, Yeah, I'm glad to hear it's working well. That's great. Yeah. Composer Baldwin Zhang and I met at New Music on the Point back in 2014 and have crossed paths at a few summer festivals, auditions, and events. He's currently a PhD student in composition at the University of Chicago. Here's a clip from Baldwin's Fidelio Descending. We'll discuss in detail with Baldwin after we listen. Welcome, Baldwin, to How It's Musically Made. Tell us about that that piece and how it came about, who the performers are, etc. Sure. So that piece was a commission from this festival called Music in Bloom, 
um, run by my good friends Clara Longendike and Amy Petrangeli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know both of them from New Music on the Point 2014. Right. This is Amy singing in this recording? Yeah, this is Amy singing. Okay. They gave me the instrumentation, so that's why it's kind of like this funky two piano, percussion, soprano, and saxophone group. But yeah, so the the piece came about as I was uh, reflecting on Beethoven, the 250th birthday, and also mm-hmm. the Black Lives Matter movement that really, uh, you know, obviously came to a head last summer. I was, you know, thinking a lot about um, the prison abolition movement. I was reading Angela Davis in connection with, you know, Black Lives Matter's protest. I started thinking about Fidelio, which is obviously a prison opera. I guess to your listeners, I'll maybe give a little summary. So Fidelio is a, actually a woman named Lenore who dresses up as a man so that she can uh, break into a prison and free her husband, Floristan, who is being imprisoned as a political prisoner. The, you know, opera is notable because it has these themes of freedom, a sense of injustice. I was interested in um, a kind of modern reinterpretation of Fidelio as a prison abolitionist in, in that she descends to the bottom of the prison. As she descends, she realizes that to free her husband, she would have to give up the rights and privileges that she has taken on by impersonating a man. She realizes in my version, in the, in the text I put together, that the rights and privileges she enjoys as a free man are actually dependent on imprisoning people like her husband. Um, and so she's kind of conflicted about that. And that's what this uh, aria is about, is, is that that conflict in her mind. Also, so there's a big microtonal component to this. Uh, maybe, do you want to talk about that as well? And maybe if it or how it relates to, to this this context. Absolutely. Yeah. So the uh, piece is actually for piano and keyboard and the keyboard plays an organ sound uh, that's an extended just intonation. Um, and really how it's relevant to, to this work is that when you get to a certain frequency range of extended JI, and especially with an organ timbre, you produce difference tones really mm-hmm. easily. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give my uh, somewhat under, understandable explanation, but you know, I encourage all your listeners to explore different tones on their own too. Um, so different tones are a psychoacoustic phenomenon where when you have two frequencies being played, two notes being played, you'll sometimes hear a third tone that is the sum or difference between those two tones. Those frequencies don't actually sound in the air. They're not, you know, there's nothing that's actually causing waves uh, at the frequency of that third tone to vibrate in the air. Instead, it's something that happens in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, something about the structure of your ear produces this third frequency. So I was interested in exploring that phenomenon uh, within the kind of programmatic uh, aspect of this piece. So part of the text is that you know Fidelio is hesitant to give up the liberty and privileges that she enjoys as the male Fidelio, but instead she, you know, feels this inner calling to to proceed anyways and to free her husband. Uh, I I was kind of trying to depict this inner calling uh, as these difference tones, the sense that, you know, there's something that you hear deep inside you, but isn't actually uh, realized in, 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 in the air around you. So since this podcast is, is 
sort of mostly about art song and and these and these collaborations that you guys are doing. I know we've talked a lot about this and so this like performative dimension to a lot of your work. So how do you see the relationship between text, performance and storytelling? Just that that performative dimension when we're working with art song when you know you have a singer and a pianist just directly kind of communicating with an audience. How is that dynamic sort of informed for you? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. Um, so I'm going to give my own opinion on this. And I think there are definitely people that will disagree with me. And actually, uh, one of my collaborators in my group has a very different opinion on it. So when you talk to Vedita, she'll give you a different perspective. So how I feel about it is uh, art song is actually a really performative medium because Whereas you start with a text that can be read somewhat ambiguously, you have spent time to spend with a page of poetry and you can read, you know, it multiple times in a row and read individual sections over and over again. Art song is a medium through time and it's a medium sung by one person. There kind of is an expectation that the singer has to embody the character of the speaker of the poem or embody a character some way mm -hmm. um, because an art song is never just a presentation of the text it's always an interpretation of the text music mm -hmm. you can't you can't get away from the affectual dimensions of music setting anything to music necessarily implies an affectual interpretation mm -hmm. of whatever you're setting i really try to lean into that uh, i try to build characters for people uh, in my art songs. And part of that character is not just, you know, the music, the notes, what they sing, but their body language, the sense of embodiment they put into the piece. And I think that's where uh, the, the theatrical performative dimensions can come in really nicely and easily. Let's next listen to a little bit of Baldwin's piece, Songs After Sufjan, inspired by Sufjan Stevens. your inspiration from Sufjan Stevens and a little bit about the songs after Sufjan? Um, so Sufjan Stevens is a indie rock singer-songwriter slash composer. He has roots in the Midwest, in Michigan and Illinois. Um, so, I, you know, I resonate with that because I currently live in Chicago. And, you know, he's one of, he's just like one of my absolute favorite artists that I grew up listening to. I mean, he's is the perfect soundtrack to any sad gay boy going through their, <laughs> you know, teenage years. Um, a lot of his albums really push the envelope in terms of what you typically find in instrumentation in a pop song. Like he has in Illinois, he uses like a whole chamber orchestra for a lot of tracks. For me, um, I was really drawn back to Sufjan Stevens last year when we went into quarantine and isolation because I was really missing the sense of immediacy that you get from listening to music in a live context. And I felt that pop music, because of the production techniques, better gives you a sense of that kind of immediacy and connection and intimacy than, you know, often classical or contemporary classical recordings will give you. Mm -hmm. And then the other reason I was really drawn to Sufjan Stevens at that moment in my life um, is because my mom uh, passed away. She passed away from cancer. Sufjan Stevens, uh, his mother passed away 
2015 and he wrote an entire album called Carrie and Lowell. Um, so yeah, it was really helpful for me to kind of find a kindred spirit, you know, in my own feelings. I decided to, to create this piano trio. Uh, it was actually commissioned from two different groups from music from Copeland House and the National Sawdust Ensemble for different movements. I chose specific songs that reflected on his relationship with his mother. Uh, so the, the piano trio uh, takes kind of musical fragments from these songs and reworks them into my own form and my own emotional narrative that's separate from his. So it's not at all an arrangement of it, but mm -hmm. I definitely owe him a debt in, in, in just some of the musical materials. All right, well, thank you so much for sharing your music with us today, Baldwin. Thank you guys for setting this collaboration together and pairing me with such wonderful people um, because I, I really, really love everything that my individual collaborators bring to the table. Fantastic. Yeah, great to talk to you guys. Next, you'll hear our conversation with S. or Smith Yarberry, a poet currently living in Chicago, pursuing a PhD at Northwestern. We were introduced through a mutual friend in the Northwestern English PhD program. We'd love to start with some poetry. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to read this poem called The Orchard. Um, I wrote it uh, a little while ago. Um, it's, you know, a little bit of a a softer poem, I guess, a little slow lyric poem, but that's kind of my my mood today. Yeah, I, I, you know, I feel like whenever people are like, oh, you know, what do you write about? I'm always like, pretty much sad love poetry. That's, <laughs> that's my specialty. Um, I think this is going to be uh, kind of indicative of, of that. I will read it now. Is, does that sound good? Yeah, that's Sounds great. great. The Orchard. I have no glamour. I want to go quietly, like an apple growing on a tree or a cloud blowing across the evening sky. What is this choking silence? What is this reflection in a glass? The microwave beeps, the phone lets out a buzz. The skyline is dark and steady. A fruit fly haunts at the window. Faith, belief, the things we fill our time with. When I open my mouth, it's like an empty fridge. When I open the apartment door, there's nowhere to be. She said, I would have been there for all of it. All of it, meaning even this. How come I couldn't love her? No, some things just don't make sense. Wonderful. Wow, fantastic. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so maybe tell us just a bit about that poem. Uh, like when when did you write it and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, I wrote that poem um, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I, I was going through, you know, a, a, a heartbreak, uh, the, the end of a relationship. Um, yeah, I, I was, you know, writing my way through that process, you know, thinking just about the way a relationship ends that kind of heart heartbroken <laughs> lyric you know it feels like one of those poems I'm, I'm a little far away from now but mm -hmm. um you know in in the moment you know uh being able to to write through that experience was was really important so that's that's kind of where that that poem's coming from and does that happen frequently with you when you're looking back on your past work do you feel like it's like a different person you're in dialogue with or is it is there like a through line or connection with with your past work that's a good question. I I often find myself looking back and thinking, oh, wow, 
I don't know that person anymore, um, which sometimes really good, right? When something's super sad, I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to move forward from something like that. Uh, other times, you know, of course, there are poems that I'm like, I feel like, you know, my my life story or in some way or something. Yeah, there, there are definitely poems that, that I find myself thinking just like so disconnected from and, and where I was when I wrote them. I really liked what you said in your written interview about... Um working with the word as a medium versus a sentence or a paragraph. Could you just talk about that a little bit? Why the word is, is important to you versus a bigger um, structure? One, I, I just do. I love words. I love etymology. I love uh, just language at this kind of simplest form. And I do think that, you know, every single word can suggest so many other things. Um, and, and part of, I think, that um, I can trace back to one of my teachers, Mary Jo Bang, um, I think is someone else in this camp of someone who can take a word and, and make so much out of it um, that I really did begin kind of, I think, paring down the way that I think about a poem or when I'm reading a poem, taking things word by word and seeing what, the, what that opens up if I do give each word the same attention I would give to a sentence, um, right? Looking at a sentence, we, you know, you'll look for, okay, well, what's happening? You know, who's being talked about, et cetera. But then taking that, uh, you know, step back and saying, well, what, what can I get out of each word? What does that word tell me? Where does that word come from? What is that word associated with? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, you just, you just painted such a great picture of why the art song genre is so rich and just endless in and what you can do with it and how much you can study it because right this pairing of of poetry with music um involves limited numbers of words but like you just said each word is so important yeah absolutely i you know i was in my group the other day we had a meeting and we were talking about the poem and the music and i was talking and i was like well you know i do think these lines are great um, but I'm worried about having to bridge those kind of lines together and, you know, for them to kind of make sense in this way, thinking, you know, as a poet. And, and Baldwin, who's the composer in the group, was like, well, that's where I think music can really come in and fill those gaps, right? That the music can can be those bridges between um, words or ideas or language also, uh, which I just thought was such kind of important part of this project that I that I uh, hadn't really been thinking about um, as someone who's just so word obsessed to have this person remind me that that the music can do do some work like that too. And I was like, of course, yeah, thank you for telling me that. You mentioned that you're a William Blake scholar. And William Blake is a perfect person to talk about when we're thinking about interdisciplinary or cross-media work. And so can you give a a background to the listeners about who William Blake is and his work and, and then what drew you to him in particular? Well, William Blake is a romantic poet. Uh, he was born in, in the, the kind of middle of the 1700s, which makes him a very old romantic poet. He's kind of in this weird, weird kind of in-between between movements in literary history. He, w- he was a poet and visual artist and, you know, writing and kind of, uh, quote unquote, illustrating or illuminating his work. Uh, simultaneously so that it's not not quite illustrations as in that he wrote and then illustrated but often was working on the plates with the with the written word as well as the visual art um, at the same time which is uh, really interesting as far as process goes you know if you're listening to this you're probably 
would know him from Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. The Tiger is his most famous poem taught in, in high school. But he also worked on a lot more kind of experimental work that was certainly not published widely during his lifetime. Although, you know, now there are a bunch of us, of course, r- resurrecting some of those those pieces of work. And yeah, I mean, I, I love his work. It's it's very com- complicated as in it, uh, it, the ideologies are something that he's kind of creating in this more philosophical way. So it's kind of poetry and visual art and philosophy and religion all uh, wrapped into into these uh, wonderful uh, poems. But I think he's he's really, you know, some a poet that I would use this word um, integumentum. Uh, which is a great Latin word uh, that means kind of writing that or writing sp- specifically um, that has this kind of pleasurable difficulty to it or what's difficult to understand is what makes it pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I found that is something I, I like just in, in contemporary poetry as well. And I think Blake's a great example of, of a poet that, that does that. There's plenty of examples of William Blake set to music and so do you have any suggestions of recordings that you might recommend to us in terms of performances of William Blake? So the song uh, that I think that is a, is a really great example of uh, a song that, uh, one of Blake's poems that's been put to music. It, it's a great song. It's called A Poison Tree, which is also um, the the name of Blake's song, a well, song of innocence and experience, mm-hmm. uh, a poem, um, which he did write as to be sung, although there's no music that exists to, to set them to. The uh, composer and musician is named Joseph A. Thompson. Uh, the album is called Safe Passage, and the song is called Poison Tree. I think it can be kind of hard to imagine sometimes what a poem would sound like set to music, um, especially contemporary poems, which I think is why this project's really cool. You know, when, when poets aren't necessarily working with like rhyme or something that, that maybe you would expect in a song. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this is such a good example of, of this kind of strange poem being put to music really beautifully and really giving this poem kind of its own life. You know, it's it's a completely different poem. So I think we'll close your section by listening to that. But before we do, just want to say thank you for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I was really nice to talk to both of you. I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my Finally, let's meet soprano Vedita Konix, who recently finished her master's degree in early music at McGill University in Montreal. Vedita and I met a few years before that at a summer festival called Songfest, which is dedicated solely to art song performance. So welcome, Vedita, to the podcast. We're going to start by listening to your virtual performance and arrangement of Ravi Shankar's Sandhya Raga. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about this piece and about Raga in general? 
Yeah, so the piece is titled Sandhya Raga, and Sandhya is just the word for evening. Uh, Indian classical music is very much rooted in the idea of interpreting ragas. And I feel like ragas are very kind of misunderstood sometimes because at its very basic level, it's simply a scale. So, you know, a major scale has a name. Um, it is called it, the, the raga, which is, you know, essentially just a plain old major scale. Um, it's called Bilaval in the Hindustani, which is a northern tradition. And it's called Shankara Bharanam in the Carnatic, which is the southern tradition. Um, and then, you know, there are uh, names, like d- designated names for every scale that we know of in the Western classical world, including, you know, your harmonic minor that's called Kiravani, natural minor is called Natabhairavi. Um, what else do we have? The Lydian mode is called Yaman. Um, there actually is not a <laughs> raga that really um, goes with melodic minor, actually. So that one is missing. But <laughs> <laughs> but generally, you know, it's it's kind of the same uh, scalar structure up and down. Each pentatonic inversion also has a given raga name slash association. So like I said, at its basic level, it's really just... A particular combination of tones that make up a scale or a mode. Um, but then, you know, kind of the next level of um, ragas is the way that they're interpreted stylistically and the associations that they may have. The The final level of um, raga exploration would, of course, be the virtuoso. So like, if you really are, um, you know, very skilled, if you've reached a professional level in your study and you're very like well-versed in, in Indian classical theory and um, performance practice, you know, you'd be able to maybe just do a concert um, entirely just uh, interpreting one given raga. So you, you'll have a composition or a piece that's composed in that raga and uh, you might start with you know, an alap, which is a free improvisation, unmetered, um, and you just sing kind of on a neutral syllable within within the framework of, of that given scale. And then you'd, you know, you'd sing the piece itself, the composition, and then you'd probably improvise on that as well using sargam, which is the um, system of Indian solfege syllables. But this particular piece is uh, written by um, Ravi Shankar. So I guess he just titled it Sandhya Raga because he found it to be a fitting piece for like evening or like dusk. Cool. Yeah, so the, the piece itself is not like, you wouldn't say this is a raga. It's just the piece is called um, Sandhya mm-hmm. Raga. So you also have quite a few other creative arrangements on your YouTube channel, 
And there's one in particular I'm thinking of where you use Indian solfege to sing a piece by the French Renaissance composer Pierre Passereau. We're going to listen to it first, and then maybe you can tell us a bit more about it. So this is Il est bel et bon, arranged by Vedita and sung in Indian solfege. <laughs> It was during my undergrad that I was realizing that I enjoyed choral music kind of more than like solo singing because I I just loved the collaborative aspect of it and I loved especially a cappella singing, you know, where I, I realized how much how much expression there is in the human voice and how much you can actually kind of challenge the voice to uh, create a more reverberant sound, um, you know, as, especially as a combination of voices. Kind of, um, I think I joined like the early music lab or something where we would do a lot of Renaissance polyphony. That was one of my first early earlier uh, exposures and experiences with um, this genre. Um, I started really enjoying doing like Josquin um, and other like Bach motets. And so I think that was one of the main reasons why I decided to pursue early music during my master's. And rather than early opera, you know, my, my focus was really on chamber music and working with other singers, you know, on perfecting our intonation, our balance, our expression, you know, as a group. And that's something that I just really enjoyed being musicians, I guess, more than like theatrical um, individuals. I think, you know, that that has merits of its own but this was where I was really like kind of thriving um you know of course one of the biggest losses during the pandemic was not being able to sing with each other anymore which is very sad <laughs> um and I I missed it a lot and uh my only really way to fulfill this empty void was to just sing with myself so um you know I I was really drawn again to going back to my roots in Indian classical music. I started kind of working with my dad again, trying to expand my repertoire in that area. And, um, you know, it came to my realization that a lot of the musicianship that I had developed over the years was really owed to the fact that I studied Indian music for so long, um, because that's an entirely oral tradition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you become so, um, I guess, sensitive when it comes to listening. You start listening louder than you sing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I just um, recognized that, you know, anytime I was sight reading or in a choral situation, I'd be interpreting the music in the context of the Indian sargam or the Indian solfage syllables. You know, there's mm -hmm. always this tonal center and everything is kind of in relation to that. And that's what I would kind of always use in my brain as a way to exactly know where I was all the time. The mode used in that piece is the Dorian mode, which is pretty timeless. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you hear it used all over the place. And notably in Indian music, it's uh, defined as the raga karapriya. So I was like, Considering, you know, this is a raga in its own little way, um, might as well, you know, sing it with the Indian solfege and um, give it a different kind of a flavor. A question that came up when you were talking about your sort of view of the voice in like an ensemble setting versus the solo approach. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, yeah, when you think about early music and really up until the Renaissance, uh, like, you know, the Florentine Camerata and everything, 
there wasn't really that conception of like the soloistic, like virtuosic voice that kind of came out and was delivering a text in, in the conception that we think about art song today, right? I'm wondering if you could speak more to your view of the voice in general, and then maybe tying it into this conversation about art song and this collaboration involving art song, where it's kind of somewhat of a romantic tradition. Yeah, totally. Um, and that's a really great question. And I've always felt like a bit of an oddball. Um, I mean, Maggie, you and I were at Songfest together, and that was actually one of the defining moments for me when I realized <laughs> that... I was like, maybe I don't really fit into this mold um, because I think I just view the role of the voice a little differently than everyone else here. And I don't think there's like a right or wrong. I think, you know, different people just have different vocational callings when it comes to how they want to use their voice. I think a lot of singers are drawn to classical singing because, you know, they have a background in theater and then they end up taking voice lessons and then they're introduced to opera arias and they're like wow I love this it combines you know my love for singing lyrically and beautifully with my love for acting and theater and and drama and and that you know is like a perfect match and and for me you know I had my choral background I was a pianist as a kid and I think like art song in its nature and it's and it's funny because I I think some of us in our group were discussing what art song is, essentially. And I think as a genre, it's it's really very broad. Um, I don't think it, it it could it could really be anything. If you even think about it, you know, art song is so different from opera as a medium because the singer could take on really any role. The singer could be a narrator, the singer could be a commentator, an observer on the sidelines, or even just, you know, part of the texture that's being created between the singer and the collaborator. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I kind of worked on this project with my with my father, who is a composer and um, Indian musician. I pretty much learned everything I know from him. And we recorded a set of Indian pieces. Oh, it was a commission for a Hindu temple up in Pennsylvania. And it was a collection of text that was written by like modern day saint poets and um, a few uh, from uh, earlier centuries um, in praise of a particular deity. And she is this embodiment of like knowledge and, and wealth and beauty. And um, the goddess's name is Sharada Devi. All of the text, you know, although it is sacred text, it's, it's very ornate and there are like very particular rhyme schemes and it's all like you know very sophisticatedly the, the syntax is all very like done in a particular way when it comes to Sanskrit poetry um, the album is called Sharada and I described it as a collection of art music they're all art songs they're all sung by me I'm a solo singer but I would not call it like theatrical mm -hmm, at all mm -hmm. because I think the the tone behind it is really reflective very devotional meditative a lot of times the tense in the text is just completely passive like there's no like I or me or you um and, and I consider that a hundred percent art song mm -hmm. and you know there it doesn't even have to be you know music from <laughs> a, a, another continent even if you think of a lot of like leader I think the singer does not necessarily have to be theatrical or performative I think the the singer could really be a part of the texture I can't ex I can't even begin to express what a breath of fresh air it is to kind of take a step back and look at what made me enjoy music and singing in the first place and 
and embrace that for what it is. And I think we're living through a time where people are starting to to see that. Um, you don't, you really don't have to fit that mold anymore to feel yeah. like you're gonna quote unquote make it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm really grateful to to both of you for for seeing me and <laughs> for inviting me onto this. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, definitely. of course. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Have a Bye. good day. Take care. You We'll talk again with Georgia, S, Baldwin, and Vedita in three weeks to see how their creative process is going. And this concludes the introductory portion of how it's musically made. Next week, we'll meet again with Group 1, Bree, Nathan, Vina, and Nikki, and hear about their process so far in creating original text and music, and learn about the conversations they've been having. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at How It's Musically Made to stay up to date. We also welcome questions, comments, and feedback at any time which you can send through a private message on our social media pages. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This project is supported in part by the Paul R. Judy Center for Innovation and Research at the Eastman School of Music. If you would like to sponsor an episode or contribute to the project, send us a message on Facebook or Instagram at How It's Musically Made.